Well, thank you, Titus, for sharing that Bible verse with us this morning. It is such a blessing to be able to see the children of RBC uh, recite the Word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, surely there cannot be a more important theme in a Christian's life than the theme of love. Love is at the very center of who we are as Christians. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. In other words, the summation of all these spiritual gifts adds up to nothing if a person claiming to be a Christian does not have love. Love is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. You can't miss it. The Bible is often referred to as the book of love. Redemptive history is filled with displays of God's love. We see the love of God in creation and in his mercy as man fell into sin. We see his love in the promise of salvation and the fulfillment of that through Jesus. We see the history of God's love rescuing his people and leading them into the promised land. And we see his love in the way that God visits his people and reveals his holy character to them, giving purpose and meaning to their lives as he promises to be their God. And he gives them his holy law and his commandments. And as people created it in the image of God, to love is the greatest of all commandments. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all commandments. And we should know his response by heart. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law in the prophets. In other words, all that has been written in the Word of God depends on these two basic commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. And now the subject of love is a relevant subject today. There's a great need for love. There's a need to understand what love, what true love is, and how it works itself out into the lives of others. There's a great need for compassion and empathy for people who are hurting. There's a great need for giving and acting out in self-sacrificing ways in order to benefit others. There's a great need in showing mercy and extending grace toward others. And all these things can only be achieved in a complete sense if we have a correct understanding of love. But there's a problem. There's a rampancy of unloving behavior throughout the world. There's confusion about love that is leading to selfish acts and permissiveness of sin. Unloving behavior saturates politics and our culture, our entertainment, and it's especially prevalent in social media. And even from those who call themselves Christians, There is an epidemic of judgmental behavior in the way that some Christians are speaking to another. It's very unloving. There's a way that they are speaking to one another 
that is suspecting motives in one another. And so there is a great need to understand the biblical standard of true love. Now, last week, we began looking at the biblical understanding of love that is found in the book of 1 John. And 1 John is saturated with the subject of love. There's hardly a a section in the entire literature that doesn't touch on the theme of love. But also, if you remember, there are some great challenges to be found in 1 John. There's the cyclical nature of his writing. Again, John doesn't stick with a single topic, develop it, and then move on. He writes in a way that circles back around to those themes. This means that you really have to study the whole book in order to get a full sense of the themes that it touches on. But another one of the challenges is that there are many convicting truths that are found in this letter. There's some things that are very difficult to read. Some of the sayings that he wrote are very, very difficult to take. John pulls in no punches when talking about love and even in the way that he describes unloving behavior. And we'll be looking at some of those too today. But now last week, we began looking at a section of 1 John in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, that gives us the prime exhortation to love one another. And the first thing that we saw is that that word love is the word of agape, which means to have a strong affection towards someone or something. But then we also focused on the action of love that carries with it a more exact and profound meaning. It is the love that expresses itself sacrificially, where there is a a willing forfeiture of rights and privileges on another's behalf. And then we looked at the, the reason for us to love stems from who we are as Christians who have been born of God and that we should love one another in the way that reflects the character of God. And then we saw how love was manifested to us and how it was displayed to us. And we talked about the riches of love that was displayed in the significance of God not withholding his love, but sending his one and only son, a phrase John frequently used when referring to Jesus, so that we could be granted renewed life in him now and for all eternity. And then finally, we saw the ultimate example of love, God shows us that his love, true love, is not dependent on someone loving him first, but his love overflows out of the goodness of his character. And that showed itself in the giving of his only son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we ended with verse 11. In chapter 4, verse 11, that reinforced this exhortation to love one another. And so this morning, that's where we're going to pick up again. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we'll be starting in verse 11. This is 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 11. We read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now again, this is the second time in five verses that we were given an exhortation to love one another. Back in verse 7, we see a similar statement, to love one another. And both of them begin with this address of beloved. 
Now that a word, beloved, again, is a term of endearment. It means dear ones. But I don't think John is simply being nice. He is lovingly trying to grab his reader's attention. And like I mentioned last week, we use the same device in our ordinary conversations in order to make sure someone is listening to exactly what is about to be said. And so he's lovingly saying, hey, my friends, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. And the point of this this statement is to recapture our attention and exhort us to love one another as the basic command that John has been arguing for, even from earlier parts of his letter. And for example, look with me real quick over at 1 John chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is a, a repeated statement. It's a repeated theme. This is the basic command to love one another, and he's reminding us once again to love one another. But the way that he's arguing the basis of our loving one another is very specific. So let's go back to our verse, in verse 11 in chapter 4. And he's really linking it back to the way that John showed us what true love is as detailed in verses 9 and 10. And we covered that last week. God's love displayed in his great example of his love. He says, if God so loved us, meaning since God has displayed his love to us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, since God has given freely to us, not withholding his love, but freely giving us to us even at the great cost of sending his one and only son to die for us, then we too ought to love one another in the same way. Now that word ought that we see there, now in the English language that can uh, sometimes come across as a, a rather ambiguous word. And I think we can sometimes we can read that and make the mistake in thinking that it's making some sort of a suggestion that it might be a, a good idea to love one another. But the word that John is using there is the verb ophelo, the Greek verb ophelo, and it means to owe or to be obliged or to become bound by an obligation. So what John is getting at here is that we are compelled to love one another. We have an obligation to love one another. This obligation is rooted in our relationship with him through Jesus. And implied here is the sense of duty to love one another because of the great mercy and love shown to us through Jesus and that we have become children of God. And because we are his children, we are obligated to reflect his character as our father and love one another in the same way. So then, how far does this obligation go? Someone might say, well, surely John is not implying that we go as far as Jesus. Well, look with me again over at 1 John chapter 3, down in verse 16. And just to let you know, we're going to be flipping around in our Bibles quite a bit this morning, just a few times at least. Uh, we read in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, we see the same word, ophelo, ought. 
And here, it's an obligation to love that goes as far as even laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But this obligation to love doesn't just mean wait until there's some desperate need. That may mean us giving our lives. The obligation to love one another comes daily in the way that we serve one another. And again, in order to understand this, we look to the great example of our Lord Jesus in the way that he loved his disciples. So if you would, would you turn over with me uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Put one finger in 1 John and turn over with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This is the, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and we'll be starting in verse 1. We read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The washing of the disciples' feet is a powerful illustration of how we're to humble ourselves and serve one another in love. And one of the things that makes this illustration so powerful is the unpleasantness involved in doing such a loving act, like washing feet that had been covered in the filth that was commonly found in the streets during Jesus' time. Now, there is a special significance in Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But the basic example of serving one another, he passes on to us. So let us continue reading here, but let's just skip down to verse 12, and we'll continue reading. This is verse 12. He says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you shall also do just as I have done to you. And he did this as an example for us with the command that we should do just as he has shown us. In fact, if you notice, again, there in verse 14, we see that same word, ought, ophelo, again. And then just so we understand that Jesus' actions are rooted in love and that we should demonstrate our love in the same way in return, just real quick, let's glance over to John 13 and verses 34 and 35. Jesus says this, and they are still at the Passover dinner here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By all this, by this all, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we love one another, 
We need to consider the full meaning of our obligation to love one another. This can mean setting aside preferences, even if what's being asked of us is unpleasant. Even if we have some differences of opinions about things. Or it could mean setting aside conveniences. Oftentimes the most loving acts come out by doing things that are extremely inconvenient for us. It may be taking time out of your only day off. Or it's going to require you to give over to someone else's preference for something and even make you feel less comfortable. So let me ask you, when asked to do something or to serve your fellow brothers and sisters in some way, is your response depending on what it, and whether or not it's difficult? Because just because it's difficult, even challenging, does not reduce the obligation to love and serve one another. I don't know what is convenient or easy about laying down one's life for one another. Sometimes that is the risk or the cost of when we love. Brothers and sisters, let us count it all joy in order to serve one another. Let us consider the, the tre treasure that is in heaven when we do loving acts to build one another up. Let's look to the way that Jesus loved and have a desire in our hearts to love each other in the exact same way. And let us guard against closing our hearts when it gets difficult to love. And this brings us to the other side of our obligation to love. The obligation to love means that we must guard our hearts against being unloving. Now the sheer frequency of reminders to love that we get in 1 John uh, should make us ask ourselves, why does he constantly remind us to do something so basic like love one another? Well, the simple, straightforward answer is because we often don't. Because we are sinful and selfish creatures, we often act in very unloving ways. But not necessarily just toward the world, but also toward each other. Now, I mentioned this in last week's sermon, and I think it's, mentioned, it's useful to mention it again, uh, but John is combating the unloving actions of others who are denying the basics of Christian doctrine. And he's encouraging those who are listening to continue in the hallmarks of Christian life that is displayed in the life that is walking in the light and loving your brother. And because of disputes and disagreements, as those things break out among Christians, unloving behavior begins to set in. And now, John doesn't pull any punches when it comes to explaining that walking in the light and loving your what your what walking in the light and loving your brother looks like. Throughout his whole letter, he makes stark contrasting statements. We, meet, we read him making statements that contrast light and darkness, and truth and lies, love and hate. For example, turn with me uh, back to First John chapter one. Flip back over to First John chapter one. We read this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We read, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then look with me over at 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And so just as we get exhortations to love and what love looks like, we also get warnings of what being unloving looks like. Okay, so now flip back over to 1 John chapter 4. And we get another such warning in chapter 4 about being unloving. This is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Read with me. It says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now we see that word hate used here in this passage, and that's strong language, and for good reason. This is to contrast against the idea of love. And this word that we see here as hate, it means to have an, an, an intense dislike toward, or a feeling of antipathy, or an aversion towards. It's a deep-seated dislike. It's the opposite of love. It is unloving. It shows no regard for their well-being. But there's also a, a passive way to hate someone, and that's shown in the way that we avoid someone, or neglecting to love them. So John makes this statement, if, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. John is making a comparison here of two facts. He's saying, if we say, I love God, meaning we're making the claim that we know God and have been born of God, and then at the same time, we're acting in a way that is consistently unloving toward others, that makes us liars. Again, John doesn't pull any punches. He gets right to the point. He's saying that this cannot be true. These two things cannot exist together. The one who says, I love God, the one who's claiming that they understand and experientially know the sacrificial love of God, but does not act toward others in the same sacrificial way that God loved us, that that person is deceived. These two things are incompatible with the one who has been born of God. And what this is evidence of, evidence of is that they simply have not been impacted by the love of God. That they haven't been born again or understand what it means to have renewed life in Christ. Again, if we look over at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14... Earlier in his letter, he writes this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Now, I think that we see words like hate and these phrases like abide in death. And I think we tend to take things to extremes and see the person who hates or who is unloving when we conjure the worst case scenario. 
And we always try to think of the person that is, is terribly cruel to other people. And John is not talking here about people who are, who are just wantonly cruel to other people. He's talking about brothers and sisters who claim to have a relationship with God, but are showing no signs of being alive in Christ and sacrificially loving and serving one another. Those who always have some excuse or seem to avoid such inconveniences or turn their backs when it gets difficult. And they show no evidence, no fruit of a true spiritual rebirth other than the fact that they claim to be a Christian. And this goes for those who claim to be Christians but have no desire for Christian fellowship. They say, oh, I'm a Christian and I love God like no other, but I don't like the church. I don't like the people or those who take the Bible to be the actual truth from God. I don't have any desire to sacrificially love those people. And not only that, but they will even talk poorly or even spitefully against other Christians simply for expressing their faith in Jesus Christ or for having someone point out a biblical truth. The text says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now I know that that's strong language, that there might be some who are uncomfortable with being that direct with others. Even as a Christian in saying that the one who makes a claim to know God but doesn't show any of the fruit of being born of God is a liar. That's very strong language. But my point is to help us to pause for a moment and really think about how the love of God manifests in our own lives. I want us to really ask those questions of our own hearts. Do I love like this is calling me to love? Because what is at risk if I'm not doing what the Bible is calling me to do in the basic command to love, and I'm claiming to be a Christian, then I might be deceived. And if we're listening to this and thinking that way, then we need to look hard at the cross of Jesus Christ and truly understand what sacrificial love looks like and to see our sin being crucified with Christ and the great burden that he carried for us in taking the whole of God's wrath upon himself so that we can live. Let that change us and transform us and to love others in the same way that God loved us. And John is actually making the argument that loving others is the validation for the claim to loving God. Look with me at the last phrase in verse 20. The very last phrase in verse 20, he says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, what we have here is what is called an a fortiori argument. Uh, some of you uh, may have heard this in a debate class, but an a fortiori is defined as a still stronger reason. It's a type of argument, and it means that you're arguing from the lesser to the greater of something, meaning that if the lesser of two things is true, then that means even more so of the greater. For example, if I say that I, I cannot finish eating one piece of this pizza, that is the lesser, it stands to reason as a logical extension that I cannot eat the whole pizza. That is the greater. 
So what is true of the lesser is even more so of the greater. And that's what's going on here. The apostle is saying, if you cannot love the brother or sister in Christ whom you can see, there is no way that you can possibly love the invisible God whom you have not seen. Loving God is a matter of faith. And that really must be given to you as a gift from God himself. And it is difficult in the sense that we must trust and believe the account that we see in the scriptures in order to know him and understand him. But as humans, face to face with other brothers and sisters, understanding who they are and their needs is not a matter of faith. It's basic human compassion. Now, as Christians born of God, we of all people should understand what mercy and grace looks like. If we are born of God, then when we come face to face with our sin and depravity and know the reality of how undeserving we are of God's compassion. And the point is that we should easily be moved by that compassion that God showed us into other people because we have them right here in front of our face. And our other brothers and sisters in Christ are unavoidable and are relatable. We see the same types of anguish that they're going through in their lives as they struggle to live. We see their frustrations over lost jobs and financial woes and the problems they have in child rearing. We see their needs front and center. And now, and if we don't see their needs, if we don't know what the needs are of our brothers and sisters in Christ, then that means that we're avoiding and neglecting them. And we are not loving them in order to share in their burdens. If we are claiming to love God, but at the same time failing to meet the basic needs of those that God has strategically placed in our lives to love, then we need to examine our hearts. We have an obligation to examine our hearts. This examination should really be done regularly especially when dealing with those of God's people who should be amongst the most important people in our lives, like our spouses. Husbands, do you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself sacrificially for her? Do you know what she is struggling with the most right now? And are you tending to that? Parents, Are you loving your children and not frustrating them in despair over your expectations or neglecting their needs so that you can have something yourself? Loving people with gospel love is evidence that you have the faith to love God. By claiming to love God is not evidence that you are loving people in the way that we're called to. Earlier in his letter, John alludes to the link between showing our love to one another and having the love of God abiding in our hearts. Turn with me back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. We read, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but indeed, in truth. The apostles forcing us to ask the question, 
How someone who claims to know the love of God, yet closes their hearts against a brother in need, he's seeing a clear contradiction here. Because the love that is from God that transforms us should bear fruit into the lives, from us into the lives of our brothers and sisters in the same way that God loved us. Now I want to go back to the meaning of God love, of gospel love. It is that sacrificial love. And again, it means a love for a person and their good as understand by God's, understood by God's moral character, especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. Sometimes in order to love, we must be willing to sacrifice our own rights and privileges in order to help another person. When Jesus came to this earth to save us from our sin, which he did not have to do, he did it willingly and left the glory of the Father and willingly gave that up and then submitted to the death of the cross in order to benefit us who are unworthy of such a gift. Now for us, that could be giving up our only day off to help someone in need. Or could be giving up the only funds that we have saved for our vacation in order to help another struggling family pay their bills. Or could be taking on the task for your neighbor or for your church that might cause some difficulty in your schedule or routine. Or it could be a willingness to set aside our own preferences or even political opinions in order to show love and care for others. Now, like I said earlier, and I think I mentioned this last week as well, the text in this doctrine of love, and really all the first John, is extremely challenging to my heart. And as I've been meditating on the idea of what we are called to do and to love one another, that we might be asked to willingly sacrifice our own rights and privileges for another, I have to ask myself, where is the limit to that? At what point do we put a limit on what we're willing to sacrifice and say, I'm willing to go this far, but no further? Or if there's a point where this kind of love then tramples on our perceived responsibility in other areas of our life that may be regarded as reckless. And I think this is where an element of prayer and faith comes in and how God is leading us individually and trusting it over to God that the love that you are displaying, even sacrificially, God will use that in the best way for all our good and his glory. And this is where the conviction is in, in my own heart. I keep coming back to the fact that Jesus, in a similar way, put his trust in the plan of the Father and he didn't put a limit on his love. But he went all the way to the cross and willingly forfeited his own life. And because of that, I too have an obligation to love. And when we do love, as God has loved us, it shows that we are of God and that we complete his love this is what I mean by that. Let's look back at our original text in 1 John chapter 4, verses 12. This is verse 12. 
John tells us, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, this is one of those tricky verses that we have to be careful with. We can easily make the mistake and read this like it's telling us that we can love perfectly. As if there's the possibility that we can achieve a degree of love that matches the perfect love of God. And if we read it like that, it can be both dangerous and discouraging. Dangerous in that it could lead us to think that we can match the amazing, perfect love of God. But even more discouraging when we see how often that we fail at it. And it can bring us to a point of feeling defeated, that we're not living up to the standard that John is putting forth. But I want to assure you that this is not what this means. Now that word perfected here means completed. And the sense that John is using this word perfected here is that God's love is fully accomplished in us. And this really is pointing to give us the confidence that God is indeed working in us and through us. The text says, if we love one another, then God abides in us. It's the evidence that God is in you. And that you will love your brother just as God has loved you. But why does John point us to the reality of the invisible God at the beginning of this verse? He starts out by saying, no one has ever seen God. Well, he's pointing to the reality that this is how we understand that we are living by faith and loving and obeying God. In other words, John is saying something like, yes, no one has ever seen God except the Son. But you can have confidence that the holy God of love is abiding in you, working in you and through you as you continue to love your brother like God loves you. Now, this should give us a tremendous encouragement and confidence in our relationship with God. This is a great encouragement to our faith. But I don't think this is just designed to be a personal confirmation that is limited to our own assurance of faith. I think there is a link here where John is showing that the love that we display to others is also evidence of the invisible God completing and accomplishing his great love to the world through us. You see, and this is really where it gets the exciting part, and we get to see how we as the church are becoming a component in the way that God continues to show his love to the world. The circle of God's love is accomplished and completed perfectly in us and through us. As we allow the truths of the gospel to melt and change our hearts, and we exercise a desire to follow Jesus' example and love others sacrificially, this continues to display the love that is from God to the world. The unseen God continues to complete his blessing to others with gifts and resources needed to live through our willing sacrifice. The unseen God continues to shower blessing on needy families through the generous sacrificial donations that we give. The unseen God continues to transform lives by raising people to carry out the work of the ministry and proclaim the great gospel of love to people. What an awesome privilege it is uh, to be given the gift of and the freedom to love. 
We are no longer blinded by selfish, worldly, and grossly insufficient displays of love. Jesus has rescued us from death and sin and has given us the freedom to love with true love, with God love, with the gospel love. Now, there's a lot of brotherly hate going out there in the world today. Hate because of political positions or hate because of the way people are responding to COVID or are showing an apathy toward it. And there are a lot of solutions being thrown out about how to go about doing what is right and what is good. Some of those things have merit, others don't. But I know that the message that the Bible brings is a solution that isn't designed by man, but it's designed by God. And his wisdom is infinitely better than all of us who are struggling to find a solution based on our best opinions. And the biblical solution is to pursue a life in Jesus by actively loving one another as God has loved us in order to break the cycle of hate and show God's perfected love to the world through us. So the question is, how are we doing displaying the love of God to each other? How are we doing guarding our hearts against being unloving? Right now, during this season with the COVID pandemic and racial tensions at an all-time high, political division as sharp as it's ever been, now is the time for the church to shine in unity and show the great love of Christ as he has shown to us. This is a time right now where people are really shaken and frustrated by what's going on in the world. How are we doing in reaching out to them in order to ease their burden? How are we doing in sacrificing our time and resources in order to make getting through this confusing time easier for them? Are the things we're posting and the angles that we're coming to at the issues, are they born out of genuine love for each other? Remember, our non-Christian neighbors and our children are watching the way that we respond to world events. And they're going to learn how to react and respond in the same way that you do. Let our responses be saturated with gospel love. Let's build each other up instead of tearing one another down in the difference of mere opinions. The obligation to love is rooted in who we are as a child of God who have been showered by his mercy and grace, it's born out of our understanding of the undeserving love that God gave to us. And we should let that inspire us to reach out in love toward others. So let's continue to reach out toward one another in love. Let us not withhold any good gift from those who need it. Let us agree with one another on the important issues of spreading the gospel and showing the great blessings of being united in Christ. Let us not make assumptions of each other's motives, but trust and believe that God is reaching out in love through his people. And when we do this, then we know that the love of God is perfected in us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, you are awesome and holy, 
And we are blown away and are in awe of your great love toward us. Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful that he did not withhold and that he gave the ultimate sacrifice for us so that we could have a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us what true love is and helping us have that freedom to be able to love others in return in the best way, in the way that you have loved us. I pray for our hearts, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged by the things that we read today or saw today, but Lord, that we would be inspired, that it would inspire us to come before you and humbly ask for forgiveness and pray and ask for strength to be able to go out and reach out to people in this world who need to see the love of Jesus through his church. Pray for churches all over the nation, all over the world, that we would be united in love with one another to be able to reach the people who are suffering and who need the message of the gospel. Lord, empower us by your grace. Give us the strength, give us the desire to know you deeper and more and to not close our hearts when we see people in need, even if it's going to cause great difficulty for us, but to give willingly, to give deeply as you have given to us. Lord, you are greatly to be praised because you are so patient with us and how often we fail at doing what you have commanded. Lord, we ask you to continue just to bestow grace upon us, Lord, and just help us and teach us of your word and give us that desire to know you and the gospel. Lord, we thank you again for all these things that you've blessed us with, with this message today, with the word, but especially with Jesus. And we thank you and pray all this in his precious name. Amen.